Hello everybody and welcome to JTV. Today we are extremely privileged to be joined by Paul Kainer, who is a British Jewish journalist currently in Ukraine, in Kiev, the capital. Um, and he's gone there to document what's happening. I believe he's filming a, a documentary. Um, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. I know your time is quite limited. Um, how are you doing right now? And what, what, what is, what's sort of been your, your journey so far, having been in Ukraine? I know you've been back and forth a bit. What have you seen? Just, just t tell us what your first-hand experience is. Well, this is my second uh, trip to cover the war in Ukraine. Um, I'm on a street corner about to have a little coffee. Uh, but in that sense, life is normal. I mean, people are walking by, just behaving normally. There's nobody wearing flat jackets, except I've got my own over here, if you can see. Uh, that's not needed here in Kiev at the moment, because, of course, the Russians, quite some time ago, uh, just to, in fact, just before my previous visit, withdrew from most of the areas around Kiev after a lot of fighting and a lot of setbacks on the part of the Russians and concentrated their forces in the east and the south. I was in the south yesterday, that was in Odessa, where there's much more tension. There were seven rocket attacks on the 9th of May, which was the day when Mr. Putin was due to make a, an epoch-making decision. Is he going to extend this special military operation into what we all know it is, a war? Or was he going to do something special in Mariupol, which is still just holding out at least those who are in the steel mill are, um, or did he have some other ghastly plan in mind? In the end, he made a very good speech from his point of view, uh, but didn't really do anything. And although they sent seven rockets into Odessa uh, in the night, uh, the damage was relatively small, and people are still walking around fairly normally there, although a lot of Odessa is blocked off. All the ways to the sea are heavily blocked off, including the famous steps, the Potemkin steps, which were used in a film, a famous film by a great Russian director, and uh, are a sort of central point of the beautiful city of Odessa. I took a train up, um, actually from Odessa, all the way to Kiev, an overnight train with a sleeper. There wasn't any food on the train, but they were, there was coffee and tea. Um, and in that sense, the train services, very important for this country to get people around. And they do travel to most parts of it, obviously not those that are occupied presently by the Russians. And even as far as Kharkiv, which is the second biggest town, and that's very close in the north to where the Russians are. But the train service is working well, and that's also been bombed every now and then by the Russians because they don't want supplies to come in from the West, that is both physically and geographically, the West being the Western powers. And of course, the travel of military equipment comes from the Western part and into Western Ukraine. And so the Russians may start bombing the trains more heavily. At the moment though, I felt perfectly comfortable coming up by train. Right. And what have you experienced that might have been a surprise to you? Perhaps things that the media haven't been reporting on? Yes, well, besides the Jewish community, which is obviously getting minimal attention in the national press, but is receiving quite a lot in Jewish press, obviously. Yeah, yeah. obviously. We'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. But in general, um, what I've been finding is that there's a lot of confidence amongst even people in the higher military who 
you would expect to say, yes, we're winning, we're winning. But they are giving some very concrete reasons as to why they think that ultimately they will triumph. Now, the question is, what is a triumph? The first triumph, of course, is that the Russians didn't march in and spend a week or two and get to Kiev and take over and get denazify, as they call it, the government. Uh, sort of re revolting phrase, but still, that's one that's used by Putin. Uh, and they've had to change tactics. They're being held back but they are making some progress here and there and then being pushed back and so on. So it could be a long war if Mr. Putin wants to pursue it. But the, the feeling is that he's not winning and that the longer it lasts, the more chances that Ukraine has of winning the war because they'll be getting Western supplies and they're having to be trained on the new Western supplies which don't match the old former Soviet kind of equipment they had. So the longer they have to prepare to get their equipment ready, and um, make battle plans, the better they think it'll be for them and the more bogged down and uh, difficult it'll be for the Russians to keep resupplying their lines. So in that sense, a lot of confidence is being expressed here in serious military circles about the future of the war. That's the one thing I've been observing and I can tell you separately about the Jewish communities. Well, we'll get there in a second, but just to speak generally about, about Ukraine. Um, I don't know if you've been to Ukraine uh, before this, this war began, but sure, I mean, you say uh, in some ways life is going on as normal in the capital. There must be some things you're, you're seeing and detecting that, that show serious you know, changes and upheaval in day-to-day -day life. The obvious roadblocks, uh, you know, with the big sign saying stop um, and sandbags all over the place and then military... Uh, emplacements along various roads, especially those leading out of the capital, but also around the central area where the Independence Square is, the famous square where in 2014 the revolution, the revolution began against what was a pro-communist regime, or at least a pro-Russian regime, um, should I say, and um, that was a great success from democratic point of view, and it's uh, obviously a potential target for the Russians. And so there's tension around that area. Uh, but otherwise, as I've said before, the, the war seems somewhat distant. Um, people, however, are not fully back to their normal working practices. First of all, there isn't as much work as there was. For example, agriculture has been decimated, so they're not exporting huge quantities of wheat, which was one of their staple exports and is vital, by the way, to countries in Africa like Egypt. Um, so there's a knock-on effect of no production of agriculture, no way to export agriculture through the sea. There's one little port open, but it doesn't anyway match what they need. Therefore, uh, the restrictions are both on agriculture and on ordinary industry and on just general commerce. So many of the shops are closed, uh, but you do go to supermarkets. There, there, there are restaurants open. Some people are back at work. There was that one day on May the 8th where everybody was confined to their houses, actually, and I couldn't get across the border on May the 7th, the night of May the 7th, from Moldova, because at 10 o'clock in the evening, the government decided to shut down the entire country, expecting something nasty. As I say, it didn't really materialize, and so we were allowed in on the 10th. And so how hard that's the way it is. Right. How high is the concern that um, the Russians are going to close in on Kiev? Well, 
I don't see that it's very likely. They, they suffered a serious rebuff um, some time ago when they were trying to get here. They were using special forces at, at first to try and come in and basically assassinate the president and take power and hope to be received with open arms and flowers and so on. That obviously didn't happen. Then they had this long convoy of trucks and vehicles and tanks, which got bogged down. Then they did deploy to the satellite areas around Kiev, which are called, uh, you've probably heard the names, they're rather notorious now, Bucha and Irpin. And we saw photographs of the bridge in Irpin having been blown up and people fleeing across the bridge, including eventually army retreats. So they could have started to take over that this country. There's, there's a tram going by, by the way, which is unusual. Trams have started to run again. Um, Butcher could have been, and, and Erpin could have been a turning point for the Russians, but eventually they were actually thrown back. I've just been talking to a soldier who has fought in Erpin and Butcher, and he's given me details of how they did, in fact, turn the Russians back. He was involved in reconnaissance efforts there, and he uh, tells me that he had a battle with three Russian soldiers, and they came off the worst, as it were. He's here, and they probably are in a very different place. Um, so... I don't see the Russians getting as far as Kiev. What they're really looking for is to capture the city of Odessa, ultimately, now that they've got Kherson, that they've got a place called Nikolaev under siege, but Nikolaev is still holding out, and that's about 100 kilometers from uh, Odessa. But these two are the biggest ports, along with Mariupol, which, of course, has been completely destroyed and uh, it's been hugely in the news. So if the Russians manage to cut off most of the south, this will be a serious blow to the, the entire country and have a huge financial and military effect. So I think they're going to concentrate their efforts on advancing slowly in the Donbass region of the east and eventually trying to capture the areas in the south. Now, of course, they lost their huge uh, cruiser, the, the Moskva, in, in a fire, which uh, the Ukrainians say uh, was caused by their own rockets hitting that ship. And the interesting thing is they cannot replace the cruiser. They can't bring in any new ships because of a treaty in 1934, uh, which stops any warships coming in during a war. Ironically, it doesn't stop submarines, however, but uh, it means they can't really replenish their fleet. And so the threat from the Russians from the sea is somewhat less than it could have been. Now, now um, obviously, the Russians have, have, have killed hundreds uh, of Ukrainians outside of uh, the capital. Um, you've travelled around Ukraine a bit. What, what, what have you seen outside of, of the city? Well, I did make a, an eye-opening visit to the two towns I've just mentioned. Uh, I'll tell you how it started. We drove through the western part of Kiev, through all the roadblocks, and then went up the road. And you could see on one side of the road, there was a lot of destruction. On the other side, not. That was as far as the Russians had reached. Then we got to a, a place not very far from Butcher, where a man of 48 years old was trying to repair what was left of his house. And alongside was a Russian tank, which we peered into. Um, and it had really been heavily destroyed. And obviously, something very big had hit. Now, the British have been supplying anti-tank weaponry, which the uh, military here says is very, very effective. We went further along the road, and there were like five tanks on the side of the road, all Russian. You can tell they were Russian, by the way, because they had V, the letter V on them. Now, V and Z, the C, are the two letters being used by the Russian forces. 
have been, these have been painted on the tanks. And the people had come out from their houses and were examining the tanks. I'm afraid it was a very grueling scene or almost ghastly because there were burned bodies inside the tanks. Uh, there was shoes and uh, a litter of boots and even a razor and things like that lying on the ground. Um, and you could see the debris of war, as it were. They'd fled. And they even had a cell phone lying next to a mobile phone lying next to one of the bodies. And this phone was burnt out, of course. Um, but it was probably stolen during their occupation of the local areas because the Russian soldiers stole a lot of things particularly cell phones, because they didn't have them themselves. This part of Ukraine is quite wealthy. And in any case, most of the soldiers, it appears, had come from poorer areas of Russia. And most of Russia, by the way, is quite a poor area. It's just Moscow, St. Petersburg, um, Ekaterinburg, and those places which are more developed. But a lot of these soldiers come from the rural areas, and they were amazed because they were told they were coming to help these poor, repressed, oppressed, Russian-speaking people who would welcome them, and it turned out that they're having much better standards of living here, and they don't want the Russians. Even those who speak fluent Russian don't want Russian occupation. So anyway, we drove past these extra tanks, these five tanks I mentioned, and got into the town of Bucha. Interestingly enough, the station is perfectly preserved, wasn't hit, but the street called the, the railway station street was littered with tanks, all of them Russian there'd been a serious battle as they tried to go south towards Kiev. And on the side of these tanks was written the word of the name of the Chechen leader, because the people there said they saw Chechens driving these tanks. Now there was a Chechen unit that is affiliated to the Russian Federation and are supporters of Putin. Chechnya had a horrible war with Russia many, many, many years ago, which lasted for several years. And uh, one faction of it was pro-Moscow, and most of it was anti-Moscow. The pro-Moscow faction eventually prevailed, and they have helped to fight wars subsequent to that. And the Chechens obviously suffered a very serious reverse in the town of Bucha. We went to see people who were being, being helped to recover from what had, what had hit them. Uh, this was by World Jewish Relief has a... Uh, representative here, an outstanding representative, who's been handing out aid to people of any kind, whether they're Jewish or not. And we went back to visit some people who'd been hiding in shelters or right underground or in their rooms because they couldn't move very far. And this aid was being, was being supplied and very gratefully received. We saw a little girl actually who was five years old who didn't want any aid. She was being offered a chocolate and she turned around and said, I don't like that kind of chocolate, get me the other kind. <laughs> she was five, so I think she could be forgiven uh, as she pedaled her bike away. But everybody else seemed very grateful for what they were receiving. And we then went into the town of Irpin, which I've just mentioned previously. And Irpin is also a very well-developed city. Uh, many of the buildings were burnt out. It was rather ironic that one of the buildings had on it uh, for sale, apartments for sale. Apparently they were the last two buildings that were giving or were offering apartments for rent, but the apartments are now burnt out. So I suppose their value has decreased considerably. So those were the two towns I visited, two towns that were vital to the repelling of the Russian invasion. And um, they are slowly starting to recover. Water 
gas electricity is now being restored. Uh, and although water supply is intermittent, the rest is working. So life is getting somewhat better. I met a 33-year-old actress who lived in one of these difficult houses in Butcher, actually. And she'd been helping the old lady once she'd returned from Kiev, just as the Russians pulled out. And uh, she can't get a job because, of course, there's no job for actors or actresses. All theatres in the entire country, certainly this part of the country, are shut. Right. And tell us about what you've seen of the Jewish community in Ukraine. Well, besides the great work that World Jewish Relief's representative is doing here, I spent two Shabbats uh, in different places. Um, the Shabbat here in Kiev that I spent was just around the time of Purim. Uh, and um, two things happened. Sorry, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going back a little bit further. The, my Purim experience was actually in a place called Kitchenau, which is in Moldova, where many of the Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian refugees had been stationed and been looked after. That was amazing. We had an American guy who was able to do the Megillah and do the Megillah reading. And it was quite a moving thing to be that close to Ukraine and talk about the liberation of people, in this case, the Jewish people, from imminent disaster. There was a certain parallel. Um, then I got into Kiev, and I spent a Shabbat here just a few weeks ago. It turned out that I went to the Brodsky Synagogue, and it was a Friday afternoon when I arrived, and they were delighted that I came. Um, it isn't, my, isn't the normal reaction when I turn up uh, anywhere, but they were thrilled because they said it's a nace, it's a miracle, because their rabbi of the shul had decided to spend his Shabbat about 30 kilometers away um, and uh, was coming to Shul that week. Um, I'll tell you where he spent his Shabbat in a minute, but I was actually very happy to do Friday night and Saturday with the crowd. And there was a lot of very useful stuff around besides the meals, which were nice. There was bottles of vodka. And I can tell you the vodka here, homemade, was outstanding. And uh, as the afternoon drew on, the vodka tasted better and better. Uh, anyway, we, we had a marvelous Shabbat. And then the second Jewish experience, I suppose, that you could say I had was going down to Odessa. That was my previous trip. And I spent a Wednesday morning, in the morning uh, minyan, in the main shul in Odessa, which is run by a Chabad rabbi. And they get 30 or 40 men every morning. And I was amazed to see what a large minion they were getting. And apparently they're getting more and more people as a result of people feeling, well, this war has obviously made me concentrate my mind. I better decide, am I Jewish? Am I strongly Jewish? You have to remember that Odessa was a very Jewish town at one point. In the 1920s, 30s, it had 30% of the population being Jewish. Um, and of course that's dwindled, but there's still a strong Jewish community there. And they were not religious as such, uh, during the communist era, but subsequent to that, has become more and more interest in Jewish affairs, and that's been crystallized by the war. I met a couple of people who had uh, decided for the first time they were going to do uh, a proper acceptance of Pesach, and they did not eat any bread and even rice during that period. And one girl told me she was thrilled. It felt very good. It felt very meaningful to her to be doing this while the war was potentially raging around the place. So those are two Jewish experiences that I've had while I've been here. And do we have any idea of how many Ukrainians in general and Jewish 
uh, people living in Ukraine have of exiled. Could you repeat, Could you repeat the, question? the question? Yeah, do we know how many Ukrainians generally and how many Jewish people living in Ukraine have left the country since the war began? Well, you know, this country had 44 million people in it. Now it's lost 6 million at least to move out of the country during the war, mainly women and children, almost exclusively. And many, many more, probably 10, 11 million have moved from their normal homes to different parts of Ukraine. So it's a huge population flux. The Jewish community has been affected only in the same way as everyone else. The Jewish community has been helped a lot by outside Jewish communities who have taken out orphans, for example, from Odessa and other places. And um, Jewish communities have made many of the people who wanted to leave extremely welcome in their foreign parts. Um, but I don't think the Jewish community has been any differently affected than the rest of the country from this war. We don't know the exact numbers of the Jewish <laughs> because um, it depends how you define Jewish. You know, the Russians, the Soviets, used to define being Jewish by your father. And that would be in your passport. And of course, halakhically, it's uh, the mother that counts. Uh, that's one aspect. And the other aspect is people as it were, became more Jewish when they realized there were certain advantages in terms of people helping them. So numbers are a dangerous game to play, and uh, I'm not going to give you a direct figure. Um, okay, and two final questions. Question number one, what, what is it that motivated you to go out to Ukraine, into a war zone? Well, I've covered many wars uh, as a journalist in the past, and uh, I'd hoped that my last couple of wars would have been enough. You know, I was in Syria and I've been in Iraq and I've been, also, uh, been in the Middle East, lots of places in Africa, uh, and I covered the revolutions in Eastern Europe. And I thought that was going to be the end of my career as a foreign war reporter, but I couldn't possibly avoid the most crucial war. This is the war that's going to define the future of the West to the East, the relationship between the two. And it's already affecting us, of course, hugely all around the world. So the old instincts came back and I decided I had to cover this war. It's not exactly a popular decision back home. I can say that my wife isn't that charmed, but she accepts that that's, that's the person I am. And I, I believe that by reporting accurately on conflicts, there goes another trap, by the way. I don't know if you can see it, if you missed it. Um, we saw it. By reporting accurately on the war and particular aspects of the war, I think I contribute something. I try not to cover the bang-bangs so much as what's going on, the real reasons and people, how it affects ordinary people and uh, a range of people. And to some extent, by covering that, I feel I'm doing a service to humankind, although I, I might be very much exaggerating the importance of my role. I might say that it may be that I'm just being a journalist, but I do feel on some occasions I've been able to shine a light down a dark tunnel. Yeah, I, and I, I agree that shining light and, and exposing what's going on is, is important um, because of narratives. And I want to talk about narratives and the whole Putin narrative as well as the final question. But just before that, you said that the implications of this war are going to be huge for the world. What do you mean by that? Well, obviously, uh, if the Russians had easily taken Ukraine, Putin would have been very tempted to say, I want to reestablish the same sort of power that existed in the Soviet Union, or as he might have said at the time of Peter the Great or Catherine the Great. Um, I think those were his dreams. They've been somewhat shattered by the difficulties he's had here and the huge 
um, reaction there's been, particularly in Europe, and the, the boycotting of, say, besides the Russian economy, um, also boycotting sports, um, he's become very isolated. Now, this can have two effects. It can make him more and more determined and more and more ruthless. That's a possibility. But it looks to me as if eventually the power of the sanctions, the, the, the opprobrium of the world, and possibly an increasing opprobrium by Russians, particularly influential ones, when they see how much their style of living has been affected. These can all be factors that will prevent Putin from triumphing and actually might ultimately produce a relationship between Russia and the West that is much more sensible and beneficial to both sides. So that's the optimistic note on which I'd like to end. Okay, well, just, just before we finish, if I can ask one final quick question. Um, Putin has this, we are denazifying Ukraine narrative. Can you just explain what he's saying and why, uh, why this narrative is false? Well, Putin is governed by the fact that 27 million Russians, allegedly, or Soviets, died during the time of World War II, which is huge. Um, and it's therefore very much ingrained in the psyche of all the population that if you mention the word Nazi, it's something which is very anti-Russian. What he's done is he sort of elided the idea that Ukrainians are anti-Russian and they speak Russian, and therefore there's obviously some big Nazi plot, probably aided by the West, which is causing them to take arms against the Russians and not allow them to just take over and stay or become part of the expanded Russian empire. So because they uh, are not towing the line, as it were, and Ukraine became more and more westernized, I think uh, falsehoods grew in Putin's mind and those around him. And, and he used the Nazi slur as a way to try and unify his own population behind what he was doing. Um, it seems to have worked pretty well in, in the majority of the population, but it seems to me also, although I haven't been to Russia for a long time, that there is a tendency amongst more intellectual Russians to realize that this is all just a facade and it's not doing them any good. So denazification, that is taking away the Nazi government, the Nazi way of life or whatever he's talking about in Ukraine, ludicrous though that is, has been efficient, but I think it'll be increasingly less efficient as time goes by. And of course, you've seen that the president, who happens to be Jewish of this country, um, is getting huge support. And he's hardly going to be a Nazi, is he? Unlikely. <laughs> um, Paul, thank you so much for speaking to us. Please continue to stay safe. And uh, thank you for making the time to join us. I'm going to tell you, there's a friend of mine sitting down at this table who you might see is in military uniform. Yes. And uh, he's the man I mentioned earlier who has battled in uh, both Irpin and Bucha and um, one of my sources of information at this point. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you for all your, the information you've given over to us. And just, again, big thank you for your time and continue to say, stay safe, Paul. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.